Welcome to the Facts Machine. My name is Rob, and I'm here with Noah and Emily, where we're about to pitch you some facts about today's episode theme, baseball. Baseball is timeless, and the historics might have you in hysterics. We hope to scoop up some of the most fascinating stories and traditions in America's favorite pastime and let them steal your hearts. Before we get started, just a reminder to pop over to our social media accounts on Instagram and Twitter, at Facts Machine Pod, and on Facebook as Facts Machine Podcast. If you want to tag us in fun trivia, slide us a DM or catch some cool bonus content, your ratings and reviews could send us up to the big leagues. And with that, I'll toss it over to Noah with our first fact. Thanks, Rob. This week I learned that the two guys who wrote Take Me Out to the Ball Game had never actually been to a baseball game. <laughs> so Take Me Out to the Ball Game was written in 1908 uh, by Jack Norworth, who wrote the lyrics, and Albert von Tilsner, who wrote the music. So as the story goes, Norworth was riding the subway, he saw a sign that said baseball today at the polo grounds. He immediately started jotting down notes, and the poem that he wrote down became the lyrics to the song that became a hit the same year. So it's true that he had never actually ever been to a baseball game before writing it and wouldn't go to his first until 1940, which was 32 years later. Wow. <laughs> that game was between the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Chicago Cubs, and Brooklyn won uh, 5-4. Um, that's not really important to this fact. I just wanted to tell you that I looked it up. Um, oh, Brooklyn, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, it actually took his song almost as long to be played at a baseball game, with the first known occurrence was in 1934 at a high school game in L.A., but was also played later that year in Game 4 of the World Series. So it was actually a pretty quick uh, rise. And just in case you guys were wondering, Detroit beat St. Louis in that game 10-4. to But it's okay. St. Louis won the series. <laughs> oh, good. Phew. Yeah. So, meanwhile, this song had become a huge hit in movie theaters of all places, where live pianists, yes, live pianists, would play <laughs> songs to the audience while the film reel was being changed over. There were often sheet music stores on the way home from the theater, so people would pop in to buy the song they had just heard. Um, so after the 1930s, it was commonly played at baseball games, but it wasn't until 1976 that legendary baseball announcer Harry Carey began singing the song over the loudspeaker between the top and bottom of the seventh inning for Cubs games. And this was wildly popular and spread throughout the major leagues. Yeah, sure. I didn't know that Harry Carey sang it. I always thought it was yeah. just like, it happened, so, but well, I guess... The story behind that and how this got started was that Harry Carey really liked the song. And so in the uh, like the announcing box, what do you call that? The press box? Um, the PA box? The, whatever. Yeah. Where, where they would sit with the microphones and look mm. at the game. Um, he, <laughs> he would, uh, this is a podcast all about how much we know about baseball, by the way. <laughs> um, it's going to be so, a good one. <laughs> right. So he, he and his co-announcer, this is getting worse and worse, so Harry would just sort of sing the song to himself. So the guy that was in the box with him asked him if he wouldn't mind if he just put like a, a, like a PA or like a microphone that was hooked up to the PA system for the entire stadium so they could hear him singing it. And Harry Carey didn't like that. Um, so then the other guy told him that he had secretly recorded him many other times and he would just play that instead. And so, so then uh, Harry decided it was okay and he'd sing them a new one. I was looking a little bit at this song and I found somewhere that it was one of the most recognizable songs in the English language. Um, the Library of Congress in 2010 added it to the National Recording Registry, which selects recordings that are culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Mm -hmm. But what I thought was fascinating was under it on the list of most interesting songs... The second most recognizable song in the English language is For He's a Jolly Good Fellow. Yeah, that makes sense. Really? And okay. it, it kind of makes sense because I instantly recognize it, but, but I wondered why do we yeah. still recognize That's that song? Like if, if anybody started singing that, I could join in, but I have no idea why. And yeah. apparently it's a French tune that the, the story goes, it was written the night after the battle of Malplaquette. What? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Is this Honestly, Rob, I swear to God, I don't know how relatable this is to our podcast audience, but that sounded like Klingon. <laughs> I feel like that might land. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm also just about as good at French as Emily is. Um, 
but I didn't want to say Malplaquet because that just sounds very American. But it's it's a place that's spelled something like that, um, <laughs> and so it became this French folk tune because Marie Antoinette heard one of her maids singing it, and she really liked it, and so she told everybody to learn it so they could sing it. Um, it became so popular in France that Beethoven used it in his composition Wellington's Victory, Opus ninety one, uh, written a hundred years later. So it was this French like nationalist song. Um, no. Wellington's victory was over the French. Yeah, well, <laughs> quite true. Well, like, did Wellington beat yeah, Napoleon? That, that was yeah. Oh dear. Yeah, wow. I uh, that's a good. You know, context is important. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but because of its popularity, I guess in all of Europe, it became just kind of the song you sing, and it was actually the birthday song before the Happy Birthday song. Wow. And so on your birthday, you would sing for He's a Jolly Good Fellow, um, and. One thing I thought was really cool was it, it was on Bing Crosby's, one of his earlier albums, um, <laughs> the name of the album from 1961 was 101 Gang Songs. <laughs> because gang songs were something very different in 1961. So, yeah. so because of this tradition of everybody standing up and saying, take me out to the ball game uh, in the middle of the seventh inning, I got interested in looking at other between the inning you know, uh, traditions from around the sport. And I found something I thought was really funny. Um, So the story is that between the fifth and sixth innings at Pittsburgh Pirates games, there takes place a wonderful tradition known as the Great Pierogi Race. What? Um, (laughs) In which contestants all wearing giant pierogi costumes, they compete in a foot race around the field. Um, And they have names. These are characters that stay with, you know, with it for a long time, even when the runners inside them change. Uh, They have names such as Jalapeno Hannah, Cheese Chester, Sauerkraut Saul, and of course, the hero of this story, Potato Pete. So it is, generally speaking, it's harmless fun, but sometimes some crazy things can happen, like one pierogi will trip another, that sort of thing. However, they also take the pierogies on the road when the Pirates play teams like the Washington Nationals, who have a number of mascots of their own that resemble different U.S. presidents. And that's where everything gets crazy, because the first time that the pierogies met the presidents in 2008, it did not go well. The the Teddy Roosevelt mascot chased around the pierogies with a four-foot-long aluminum knife. (laughs) (laughs) Aluminum foil knife, I should say. Uh, Slightly different. I mean, it was not... You know, so a sword. Yeah, uh, yeah. So the second time, the second time in 2009, Potato Pete knocked out Teddy Roosevelt with a flying tackle, um, and so the yearly meetings have continued and almost always result in gratuitous violence. Um, and just one more connection is that Teddy Roosevelt was also president in 1908 when "Take Me Out to the Ball Game" was written. So, oh, there we go. Story. I'm not super familiar with the presidential antics of the Nationals, but I'm pretty sure Teddy Roosevelt is the the hero of their story. Yeah. And he always wins, and he usually cheats. So I had one other thing about inter-inning play. Because in the United States, we have the seventh-inning stretch, and we you know, we sing, and we get up and stand. In uh, in Koshien Stadium in the Japan, the Hanshin Tigers have a very interesting tradition, uh, which is during their seventh inning, they actually, the fans all inflate and release large, like almost four foot long balloons. Wow. And thousands of them are like blown up and released into the air. And <laughs> it's kind of funny to watch, but they're not like round balloons. Yeah. And they're not balloon animals. They're these obscurely shaped, and many sports writers have commented, phallic looking oh, balloons. No. And they just oh, all go my. flying around in the air, like That's during crazy. the seventh inning stretch. Um, so I actually looked also at a baseball tradition that isn't necessarily intra-inning, um, but that is also related to take me out to the ball game. Um, so actually the consumption of Cracker Jacks as a baseball thing is actually a direct consequence of take me out to the ball game and the fact that Cracker Jacks are in the lyrics of that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Cracker Jacks, uh, which according to at least one snack expert who I read an interview with, um, may be considered the first American junk food, have actually been around since 1893 when brothers Frederick and Louis Ruckheim uh, established a company to sell their popcorn, peanut, caramel concoction, um, which actually first debuted on their streetcar in chicago uh, so that's that's one of the part of this song that actually bothers me a little bit because as the song goes like it goes buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks which i thought was a little weird because cracker jacks have peanuts in them so it's really like it's basically saying buy me some peanuts and more peanuts like, well, what if you, you know? want your peanuts without popcorn and caramel well why can't you just have <laughs> the, the peanuts as part of the cracker jacks 
Yeah, buy me some Cracker Jacks. But yeah, Frederick and Louis Drukheim, so they had nothing to do with Cracker Jacks being included in the lyrics of Take Me Out to the Ball Game, but they profited from it big time. And actually leaning into the association that their product came to have with baseball, um, from 1914 to 1915, Cracker Jack prizes included collectible baseball cards that featured the era's most popular players. And nowadays, a full set of cards from either year is valued at over $100,000. Um, with the most valuable being, so listen up, guys, if you have this, you can make a quick buck, uh, a mint condition Christy Mathewson card. Those have sold for as much as $40,000 a piece. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Christy Mathewson in the uh, inaugural class of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Oh, really? I wow. believe. I believe uh, I read that today. I guess that's why. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> we, are, we are well studied on this today. And also, to kind of further uh, emphasize how cemented um, Cracker Jacks are in our baseball culture, as in our teeth after you eat them. Um, <laughs> in 2004, uh, the Yankees actually briefly switched over to another brand of caramel corn called Crunch and Munch, um, but that only lasted for two months because the fans were so outraged um, <laughs> at the swap that they quickly realized their mistake and brought Cracker Jacks back. I don't like that name at all. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not the same. It doesn't have the same ring. It doesn't rhyme in the song. You can't sing, buy me some peanuts and crunch and munch. Ruins everything. Buy me some bunches of crunch and munch. (laughs) No. I don't care if I ever get lunch. (laughs) Oh, wait, no. That's so good. Okay. Yeah, we might need to off that bean keys. (laughs) Make some money. Um, And the last Cracker Jack thing that I wanted to mention that I kind of uh, happened upon in doing all of this sort of Cracker Jack related research um, was that apparently in 2013 they briefly expanded their line of snack offerings uh, to, with various like sweet and savory add-ins oriented towards adult consumers um, in these new snacks called Cracker Jacked which is hilarious <laughs> Cracker Jacked but um, one of the new flavors in this line uh, called Power Bites included caffeine wow. like like an, basically an energy snack um, and this raised concerns because, you know, people were like, oh, Cracker Jacks are usually kid food, and they might not know that they have caffeine for adults, and then you'll have all these kids tweaked out on caffeinated Cracker Jacks. You know why I don't care about that <laughs> criticism at all? It's what? because, as you said before, Cracker Jacks were the first junk food. They're terrible for you. And we were like, yeah, totally fine giving them to kids then. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's true. <laughs> Throw in some caffeine, and it's game over. I mean, honestly, that's just the four loco formula. Like, yeah, <laughs> take something that kids have anyway and put a caffeine in it. <laughs> there you go. So can I complain more about peanuts? <laughs> Something tells you it doesn't matter what we say. It's just going to well, happen anyway. Okay, so <laughs> complaining about peanuts is the new American so, tradition. You know, so <laughs> Cracker Jacks, as you mentioned, are like intimately associated with baseball. But the other part of the song, Buy Me Some Peanuts, peanuts are especially associated with baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, according to the National Peanut Board, who has a website that is just bullshit. Like, <laughs> it's just all this stuff, this pro-peanut agenda. I mean, it's like, it is like they have endless articles just about how great peanuts are and how important they are to like the American life. And I read through so many of them, and they're just like, there's this one about how brewers are putting in, pe- basically making peanut-flavored beer, and it's like, well, Whoa. people think that the peanuts are there just so because to like increase your thirst, but that's not really the case. I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> and, and but they say that really the peanuts taste helps cut some of the bitterness of the beer. And like maybe, but that's not why. And, you know, and I. But the thing that's frustrating me the most about this is that I read so many articles on the National Peanut Board website, and I know that I'm like the only person other than Jimmy Carter who gives a shit what <laughs> what they put on their website. And I read so much of it, but I did get one piece of useful information from them, which is that um, the first time that peanuts were ever sold at a baseball game, uh, at least in large quantities, was there was this guy whose job it was to, so to sell ad space on the scoreboard. Um, and a peanut company said they wanted to buy some ad space, so he put it up there, but they only paid him in peanuts. And because he was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with all these peanuts, he sold them at the stadium. And that started that tradition. <laughs> they literally paid him peanuts. <laughs> and what I'm wondering is that is where the that, expression say, comes from? Yeah, that, that could be. That kind of uh, contradicts the expression, though, because usually you think, "Oh, like I, you know, like oh, I got peanuts. That means nothing." But if he was flipping them for like, yeah, a decent yeah. salary, yeah, that, that was him making the best of a terrible situation. Like nobody Fair. like has a business <laughs> and is like, "Oh, totally fine. I'll just accept in lieu of actual payment just like a bunch of peanuts." True. Well, life gives you peanuts. 
<laughs> sell them to other people in the stadium. <laughs> and they'll all shell out. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> um, so I actually have, I have one last story. Uh, it's not directly related to the song, but it does uh, take place in 1908, which is when the song was written. So in 1908, the Cubs beat the Giants to win the league championship uh, via an infamous play known as Merkel's Boner. What? <laughs> yes. Okay. This is like a famous incident in like the early days of baseball. So I'm going to tell you the story of Merkel's Boner. Okay. So, <laughs> So in 1908... If you're a child listener, you may want to step away from no, the podcast. It's, it's not what you think. It's, it's, it is cringeworthy, but not for that reason. So in 1908, um, Giants rookie Fred Merkel, who was then 19 years old, uh, making him the youngest player in the National League. He had only played uh, in 38 games all season, all of them as a sub and a backup for the first baseman. Um, was recovering, just, I mean, it gets worse and worse. He was recovering from two foot surgeries following a blood infection that almost resulted in his foot being amputated. Oh, so anyway, in a game that would later decide whether the Giants or the Cubs went to the World Series, he gets his first ever Major League start, okay? So the game is tied 1-1. He hits a single with two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning to put runners on first and third. Things are going good so far. Then... The next batter hits a line drive that advances the runner on third to home, and Merkel starts running towards second base. The crowd, seeing that the runner on third was going to make it home, which would have meant that the Giants won the game, stormed the field. So Merkel saw this and is like, I guess that means the game is over, and turns around without touching second base. So the official rules of baseball, actually rule 4.09, state that a run is not scored if the runner advances to home base during a play in which the third out is made by any runner being forced out. So the Cubs' second baseman realized that he still had a chance to get Merkel out, frantically signaled to his center fielder to throw him the ball. The center fielder had to find the ball in the huge crowd of people that were now walking around the outfield. He finally finds it and throws it toward the infield, but the ball is caught by the Giants' first base coach and deliberately thrown into the stands. A Cubs player climbs into the stands and retrieves the ball from the crowd, manages to get back to touch second base, resulting in the third out and no run was scored. Unable to quickly clear the field of fans, the umpire ruled the game was over, quote, on account of darkness. And the score <laughs> and the score remained a tie. Okay? So they played a rematch oh at the end of the season. At, at the last game of the season, the records between the Giants and the Cubs are exactly the same. They play one last game as a rematch because of like this craziness to break the tie. And the Cubs win. All because of Merkel's boner. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Noah. Emily, you're up next. All right, so this week I learned that on August 24th, 1919, the Cleveland Indians beat the Philadelphia Athletics 2-1 to in a game that concluded as a thunderstorm was rolling over the field. The catch? Huh. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> the final winning pitch was thrown by Indians pitcher Ray Caldwell immediately after he had been struck by lightning. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> So, so as outrageous as that initial fact is, it's actually only a scraping of the tip of the iceberg that was the persona of Ray Caldwell, at least in my opinion. Uh, as a baseballer, he's remembered as one of the 17 players who was allowed to continue pitching spitballs after the practice was apparently outlawed in 1920. Uh, he was also a pitcher for the New York Highlanders and the Yankees, the Boston Red Sox, and the Cleveland Indians, um, and actually was pitcher for the Indians when they won the World Series in 1920. Um, he was also known for pitching a no-hitter against the Yankees uh, in 1919, and his career earned run average, or ERA, which is a term that I learned a few hours ago, uh, was <laughs> transparency, uh, was 3.22, which I believe is considered meh, <laughs> at least for that time period. I've learned more about sports today than I have in probably the past three years. <laughs> but <laughs> beyond his baseball record, he is known for having a lifestyle that an obituary referred to as, in quotes, legendary. Wow. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Buckle in. So uh, his, his career as a pitcher for the Highlanders and the Yankees uh, began in 1910. And as a sportsman, he made a name for himself for being capable uh, at pitching a couple of different fancy pitches uh, and also being decent at bat. 
however, these abilities were, at least in the view of commentators at the time, and also, according to commentators since, uh, hampered by his tendencies towards partying, womanizing, and general debauchery, uh, which Yankees manager Frank Chance referred to as his Broadway training. <laughs> um, and these habits resulted in him frequently breaking curfew and missing practices, and occasionally disappearing on cross-country benders in the middle of seasons. Um, to add to his most interesting man in the world, Dos Equis-esque reputation, uh, he at one point was supposedly attending rehab in St. Louis, though he actually might have been off playing for a team in Panama under an assumed name instead. Um, I didn't really find a clear answer to this, but apparently I saw some accounts of newspapers at the time speculating on his apparent disappearance uh, from the roster and noting that there was a rising talent named Collins on the Panama team who bore a striking resemblance. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what year was that? It was 1916. Um, so post, like, they just built a canal, and they were like, let's make yeah. a baseball team. <laughs> I mean, you know what else we I need? I mean, you know, one of those is harder than Yeah, baseball yeah. is tough. <laughs> um, Fair I, that was the amazing thing, is that, um, about that particular story, where he was on the Yankees, and, like, he's just, like, his drinking's, I like, got out of control, and then one day, he just, like, doesn't show up. And the Yankees manager was like fed up, and he gave him a fine and suspended him for two weeks. But he never came back until next season for spring training. He showed up like two weeks late to spring training or something, and they let him back on the team. <laughs> yeah, and like yeah. nobody ever really found out for sure where he was for seven months. Yeah, like that is so yeah. Incredible. That was that. That was the period of this rehab versus Panama. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Wow. <laughs> Um, and also, during one of his rowdier evening escapades, after a victory in St. Louis, he actually got arrested and charged with grand larceny for stealing a diamond ring from a socialite. Wow. <laughs> so, to recap, Ray Caldwell was a pro baseballer by day, and a notorious ladies' man, bon vivant, possible international man of mystery, given his hypothesized Panamanian alter ego, and a jewel thief by night. <laughs> All that being said, when Ray wasn't uh, falling to the wayside, as his managers and the newspapers at the time euphemistically put it, uh, he was actually a pretty talented pitcher. And it's for this reason that after being traded from the Yankees to the Red Sox and only spending a year-long stint in Boston, uh, Cleveland Indians manager Tris Speaker opted to sign him in 1919 under a highly unusual contract. So, demonstrating some pretty masterful reverse psychology, Speaker included the following clause in the contract. After each game he pitches, Ray Caldwell must get drunk. <laughs> he is not to report to the clubhouse the next day. The second day, he is to report to manager Speaker and run around the ballpark as many times as manager Speaker stipulates. <laughs> the third day, he is to pitch batting practice, and the fourth day, he is to pitch in a championship game. Wow. Yeah. So, surprisingly enough, this approach of instituting a pitch, party, practice, repeat routine <laughs> was extremely effective. Wow. <laughs> the six games that he played in the 1919 season uh, earned him a 1.71 ERA, which is good. <laughs> included the aforementioned no-hitter game and his electrifying, or I guess more accurately, electrified performance against the Philadelphia Athletics on August 24th. Uh, that career-defining and legacy-defining pitch took place at the top of the ninth, Indians leading 2-1 to one with one out left in the inning. Caldwell was at the mound readying his pitch when, as witnesses described it, there was a blinding flash that seemed to set the diamond on fire, and Caldwell was knocked flat from the shock of it. Players and spectators watched first in horrified and then shocked amazement. <laughs> shocked. I just, I didn't even, that wasn't even intentional. That was a freebie. Was there. That was a freebie. <laughs> when Caldwell, recovering from his unconsciousness, stood up, dusted himself off, glanced around a bit to make sure that all of his limbs were intact, <laughs> good, and pitched the final out that closed out the inning. <laughs> wow. In describing his experience of a catastrophic freak accident that would kill most people, Ray Caldwell, presumably while wearing some sick shades, said, it felt just like somebody came up with a board and hit me on the top of the head and knocked me down. Sure. <laughs> so in my mind, it's only natural that Ray Caldwell, who already beat some serious odds in even being signed to the Indians, given his reputation for partying hard and not really showing up, uh, he wouldn't let some wayward lightning interrupt the streak that began his career renaissance and his chance to go down in history as a total badass. I mean, it's very impressive. I mean, the fact, I mean, it is, as you mentioned, amazing that he, like, survived, but that he got up and then 
finished the game. And yeah. <laughs> something amazing about that is, like, you also mentioned he, he threw a no-hitter, like, really soon after that, that same season. And then the next mm. season, he went 20-10 and 10 and helped the Indians to a World Series. Like, I like think, that's pretty good. I, he yeah. might have gained, like, a superpower. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, maybe there's something to it. I don't know. In terms of people, specifically athletes who are struck by lightning, um, are you familiar with Apollodorus? No. And so most of the things in this episode, I feel like, are old stories. This is probably the oldest one. Apollodorus was an ancient Macedonian runner. (laughs) (laughs) Going way back now. (laughs) Oh, yeah. This is OG. (laughs) Original Greek. But... But Apollodorus was a, a Macedonian runner who, after winning in the Olympics, was killed by a lightning strike on his way back home. Um, so just a kind of very, very sad story. Many poets wrote about the, the tragedy of Apollodorus. And to this day, there's a race called the Race of Apollodorus. Um, it's organized in modern Ionian Varia in Greece. And so it's, it's a tribute to him. Um, and I, I don't know if he, I couldn't find what he ran. I think it might have been the marathon. Um, but he was a, a Greek runner who, who won in Olympics. So he was the only other athlete of note that I wanted to bring up. But there are a few really amazing people who have been struck by lightning. Uh, and I don't know, if, did, did the name Roy Sullivan come up? Definitely yes, I had yeah. a punch on him. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I read about Roy Sullivan. He holds the distinction of being the man most struck by lightning. Um, he has been struck seven times. He was born in um, 1912. The first occurred when he was 30 in 1942. The next six occurred in an eight-year period wow. from 1969 to 1977. So it, it's just really an incredible, like the odds of that, we have no idea like what, what the odds of that really are. The His last, so seventh instance of being struck by lightning is just, it's extra. So it occurred while he was fishing on June 25th, 1977. Um, And after being struck and putting out the fire in his hair, which he was apparently well practiced (laughs) at by that point, um, he returned to his truck and noticed that a bear had walked into the pond where he was fishing and and was demonstrating uh, some hungry motivations around his bucket Mm -hmm. of fish. Uh, Upon seeing this, Roy, who I assume was emboldened by his well-established, highly improbable habit of immortality, (laughs) ran over and fought off the bear (laughs) with the tree branch, (laughs) and later claimed that that was also his 22nd time fighting off a bear. Wow. (laughs) So he survived seven lightning strikes and at least 22 bear encounters. Wow. It's the revenant. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Other just random facts about, um, about Sullivan was that he, after his fourth lightning strike, started carrying around water with him at all time in case his hair was set on fire by lightning strikes. <laughs> he embraced it by wearing a hat that had a lightning burn mark on it at all times, his ranger hat with like a, a wow. charred top. Oh, man. Later in life, he reported that clouds were following him, that he knew the cloud was coming for him right before he was struck. <laughs> um, and there are two instances. One was from 1973. He was out on patrol. He saw a storm cloud forming, and he drove away quickly. But the cloud, he said, seemed to follow him. And when he thought he had outrun it, he decided it was safe to leave his truck. He was struck by lightning. No, it's exactly <laughs> the opposite of what you want to do. Because the safest place, or at least if you're caught outside, you want to get into a car that has like a hard top. You're basically in a Faraday cage. Mm. Yeah. And that's like what you're supposed to do is get in a car. Yeah. Except yeah. one of his lightning strikes is actually while he was in his car and it like shot at him through the, <laughs> through well, the car window. That's what I'm wondering. Is he, oh, through the window. Yeah. So, yeah. Also, do you know who else was struck by lightning? Like pertinent to this story? Mm. His wife was struck once. <laughs> oh, wow. While, while hanging laundry in the backyard. And it was the only time in his life that he was involved in a lightning strike incident, but not himself hell. struck. <laughs> <laughs> And we're calling in the closer. And that's me. So this week I learned that from 1913 to 1915, there was an outlaw baseball league called the Federal League, which attempted to compete with the National League and the American League. And it did so by opening eight franchises that perhaps had the best names in all of baseball. And so I was, I was really interested to learn that there were uh, outlaw leagues. There are actually many outlaw leagues. They were called outlaw leagues. They were not kind of American League, National League. Uh, like well-recognized leagues that had the more traditional teams that we still have today. Um, So they existed kind of outside of that charter. Many popped up over time. This one may have been the most successful. It definitely had the most financial backing of of any of the other leagues. Um, But let me just give you an idea of of who these teams were. So they were, were, like I said, backed by very big names in kind of American industry. Um, And they all went to cities that pretty much, of, of the eight teams, six of them were in cities that already had another franchise. So they were there to compete 
with the big leagues and mm-hmm. kind of steal away players. Right. Um, and so these teams were the Baltimore Terrapins, the Brooklyn Tip Tops. <laughs> Love that. The, bu- so <laughs> the Buffalo Blues, the Chicago Whales, the Cleveland Green Sox, the Covington Blue Sox, the Indianapolis Hoosiers, who became the Newark Peppers, the Kansas City Packers, the Pittsburgh Rebels, and the St. Louis Terriers. Okay. I'm really stuck on the Chicago Whales. Yeah. So it's inland. Yeah. <laughs> and so <How? laughs> I spent probably more time than I have on any episode of Fax Machine trying to find where the names of these teams came from. Okay. And there is... It's about like 10 minutes. <laughs> a solid 12. <laughs> but there, there is such poor documentation of why these decisions were made. And I can't tell you how many baseball almanacs, encyclopedias that I tried to find to talk about why they called them the Chicago Whales, and there is there's no answer. Chicago Whales is one of the two teams here where I was thoroughly unable to debunk or to, to, to discover why they would choose that. And it's uh it's definitely spelled W H A L E S. It's not like after the country. No, yeah, it's it's like they, they made the logo, it was a C for Chicago. The interesting thing about this league is that the Federal League, they just called themselves the whatever city they were in, Feds. And that was kind of their mm. name for the first season. So for this league, if you were in Baltimore, uh, your team was probably called the Balt Feds. Hmm. Or Brooklyn was the Brook Feds. Okay. And Chicago was the Chai Feds. Hmm. Um, and they did that for the first season. And then they started to pick up like random nicknames. Um, and that was where a lot of the fun kind of research that I did went. But everything for Chicago just says like, oh, and they got a new owner and he called them the whales. <laughs> and there's no explanation and no story. And like, usually it was something about the industry that was supporting them or like a fun story about the coach. And I couldn't find a single thing for Chicago whales. And if, if any listeners offhand know why this 103 year old baseball team was called the Chicago whales, I encourage you to write in, but I just got nothing out of it. Um, but so their logo was a C and they added a mouth at the top of the C and a little tail at the bottom. And it, it looks like a serpent more than it looks like a whale. It's also not okay. whale-like. Yeah. Um, but so this, this league did pretty well. And they actually um, they managed to get a few really big-name players to come sign for them. Big name in their day. Uh, the names wouldn't really mean much here. But some of them were interesting stories about like a, a 29- and 30-year-old player who were kind of like hitting the peak of their game and they're asking for contract like raises and the team said well you guys are getting kind of old and the source that i was reading said because you know the average male only lived into his mid 50s so, <laughs> so they didn't expect these guys to have that much left oh my god <laughs> Let's see. So each team has a few kind of cool anecdotes. And one of them, actually, no, I'll start with uh, the Baltimore Terrapins. Okay. And so the Terrapins were the state turtle of mm-hmm. uh, or the state animal, I guess. And the University of Maryland, their mascot is the Terrapins. Yeah. yeah. And so interestingly, I was like, oh, that's a nice synergy that they did, like choosing the same mascot. Do you know when the University of Maryland chose Terrapins as their uh, mascot? No idea. 1932. Wow. So after. Yeah. So this was like 16 years before. Um, they decided to do it just because it was the state of Maryland. And then, like, nothing was the Maryland Terrapins for that, like, intermediate oh. period. But so the Baltimore Orioles were a minor league team. And so when the Terrapins started, they actually, like, put a lot of financial pressure on the Orioles. And the Orioles had to start selling off their players in order to pay bills. And one of the players that they kind of, they were hanging on to, but they had to sell earlier than they expected, uh, they made a contract that was bought by the Boston Red Sox for one Babe Ruth Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. And that was in 1914, direct pressure from um, the Baltimore Terrapins, causing them to release Ruth earlier than they planned to. Yeah, because he's a Marylander, just by birth. Oh, I did not know yeah. that. Yeah, and there's a statue of him outside of the Orioles' uh, Camden Yards in ba- in Baltimore. Oh. Yeah. Was also Ray Caldwell's party partner when he was on the uh, Boston Red Sox. <laughs> oh, they were roommates. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Anyways. So um, the Brooklyn team, the Brook Feds, or the Brooklyn Tip Tops, um, I was just really interested in why they were the Tip Tops. And uh, looking through several sources, I finally found this line that kind of cracked it wide open for me. Um, It says, the Brooklyn Tip Tops of the Federal League, comma, the only major league team ever to be named for a loaf of bread. (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) Somehow that explains a lot and explains nothing. 
Well, now we know why they're named that. We have no idea <laughs> what they're named that. Right so, <laughs> that was all I needed. So, there, there is Tip Top Bakeries, which is a Australian bakery founded in 1940 um, that's worldwide. I thought at first it was that somehow. It is not. It refers to Ward's Bakery, which was open in Brooklyn. So the Wards were the family that backed uh, the original Brooklyn Tip Top's team. And well, what they did was they had made loaves of bread, and Tip Top was like their brand of bread. And so Brooklyn became the Tip Tops, and they played in Washington Park, an area in Park Slope in Brooklyn. And one of the outfield walls apparently still exists from their stadium in, in part of a Con Ed plant. Um, but what I did was I looked up opening day for the Brooklyn Feds in the New York Times, um, in which we see Brooklyn Fed's open home season. 15,000 persons view new ballpark parade and tip-tops defeat. And this was some old-timey sports writing throwdown right here. <laughs> and so I invite you to a quick reading um, from the New York Times. The Federal League, which has been threatening to locate in Brooklyn at its own peril for some time, burst into public view at Washington Park yesterday. The youngster seems to be doing very well, thank you. The Brooklyn tip top. <laughs> <laughs> I was like waiting for the old timey voice. Yep. Like, Rob, this is your time to shine. It's going to come out throughout this whole reading. <laughs> the Brooklyn tip tops played Pittsburgh, and the tip tops lost their opening game by a score of 2 0. Flossy opening ceremonies were served at the ball game, and a good time was had by all. <laughs> that makes about the 16th opening they've had in Brooklyn this season, which I think is short for 16th. Oh my god. <laughs> Baseball <laughs> baseball seems to be growing. <laughs> they have planted baseball parks in all the empty lots now, and the next thing you know, some bright Mike will come along and open a morning league. Some bright Mike? <laughs> but needless to say, the Tip Tops made their mark in Washington Park and then were gone after about a year and a half. What was amazing, though, was that the Tip Tops were the second team, not in New York City, in Brooklyn, because mm. the Brooklyn Dodgers were already there, right. and Manhattan mm. had two teams. So there are four teams in the same city, and another Federal League team, the Newark Peppers, wanted to be the Manhattan Peppers, but basically Manhattan baseball wouldn't let them in, so they settled in Newark. They couldn't take the heat. (laughs) (laughs) And the Newark Peppers also had just a a really fun kind of run of stories where they came from. They were, um, let's see, they were coached by a man whose name was Whoa Bill Phillips. Spelling, please? <laughs> well, his name was William Phillips, but he was William Whoa Bill Phillips. He's <laughs> like W H O A. Whoa. W H O A. Amazing. That's so weird. <laughs> Just, uh, and so they, um, <laughs> they were the only major league team for baseball ever to play in Jersey. And they, uh, so I, I had spent a long time figuring out what Peppers were and why they were the Peppers. And I actually got to the bottom of it. Peppers, um, some baseball players, like uh, high school and college players, may have played a game in warm ups where. Three players line up and they slow pitch a ball to a batter and the batter will slow hit it back and the idea is to ground it back to the batters. Ah. So it's a warm-up drill and like conditioning exercise. But it's not very common anymore, but it was apparently like the thing to do, like in old time baseball. So the peppers were named after that warm-up drill. So they again only existed in nineteen fourteen and really only existed in Newark in nineteen fifteen. However, one of their players, Rupert Mills, played in the nineteen sixteen Federal League season, even though there was no Federal League. <laughs> it was because a clause in his contract guaranteed him a salary for the following year as long as he continued to show up in the park suited and ready to play. <laughs> so Mills <laughs> to fulfill To fulfill his contractual obligation, he came to an empty park each day, performed oh a physical workout, God. and wore his uniform. <laughs> That's <laughs> incredible. And so every other team has like some kind of amazing story about where it came from and why their name was what it was. But the, that those were hands down the best. But the longest probably standing remnant of the Federal League is actually still standing. Um, and so it was the Chicago Whales who were owned by a guy named uh, Wiegman. And Wiegman owned a series of restaurants uh, in Chicago and in the Midwest uh, who, after a couple of years, um, when, when, the, when the league folded, he combined his team with the Cubs and mm. made one franchise. Um, and he used to own the Cubs and their park, Wiegman Field. But when his uh, restaurant chain went bankrupt in 1918, he had to sell the team and the park to another big Chicago company, the gum maker Wrigley. Oh. And so Wrigley Field stands to this day, and it is an original Federal League team field. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. So inspired by your fact 
Uh, I looked into other unusual sports leagues and found one that just is kind of like, I basically just have it here as a list of funny names, but the other one, oh man, <laughs> there's there's a lot there. So the first one, um, the Philippine Basketball Association. So they're notable in that the teams are owned by and also serve as a marketing front for various corporations. Um, and throughout the years, that's resulted in team names, um, my favorites, uh, including the Pepsi Hot Shots, the Burger King Whoppers, <laughs> Talk and text phone pals, and my favorite, Pure Foods Tender Juicy Giants. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Go Juicy Giants. So, my other. Wait, so, so who owns yes. that team? Tender? Uh, I think it's a, it was a hot dog company. So, it's, it's Pure, Pure Foods. Foods. Slash Tinder, Juicy Giants? No, not Tinder, Tender. Oh, oh. So like, the tender, love me Tender. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. equally gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's better or worse. Um, I think Juicy Giants is like a subclass on Tinder. You have to- <laughs> <laughs> no. Seeking Juicy Giants. <laughs> it's like a classified ad. Like- well endowed podcast host seeking juicy giant. <laughs> yes, Rob, I have read your emails. <laughs> Glad someone's seen it. <laughs> but my favorite unusual sports league that I found. Uh, all around, due to their dedication to some core fax machine values of creativity, friendly competition, and unabashedly ridiculous punnery, is the USL MRA, an organization that refers to itself as the Sod Slingers of America, and an acronym short for the United States Lawnmower Racing Association. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Lawnmower Racing? Lawnmower Racing. That's fantastic. Yeah. So it was founded on April Fool's Day, 1992. It's it's definitely real though, right? It's oh, it, absolutely real. Oh, wow. oh it is it is so real. I Buckle have a sword attack on the story. I want to hear, but I, I might have insider knowledge. Oh, I'm so, oh my god, I'm so excited. Okay, so founded in April Fool's Day. Uh, competitors actually modify lawnmowers uh, to, for obvious reasons, remove the blades, <laughs> but also increase their speed. And at their fastest, these mowers can actually reach up to 60 miles an hour on the racing track. So basically it looks like just normal car racing, but lawnmowers. Um, and I learned a bunch about this organization from perusing their website, which, if you want to check it out, and I highly recommend you do, is letsmow.com. <laughs> which Alyssa also mentioned on their website, in 1998 won two superlatives by Yahoo, both best of the web and worst of the web. I'm not sure how that happens, but wow. they won them both. Um, but the best part of the website by far is their Hall of Fame page. So associate, excuse me. Uh, so association founder and president Bruce Kaufman, better known by the self-designated moniker of Mister Mowdall, uh, <laughs> says about their Hall of Fame: Now lawnmower racing takes its rightful place among such noble American pastimes as baseball, mm-hmm, country music, motorcycle racing. Pinball, juggling, trivia, trivia. Hey. Uh, and quilting with a place to honor ingenuity and motivation. <laughs> so, uh, some of the Hall of Fame's honorable inductees include uh, USL MRA members with various positions within the organization and, more importantly, various amazing nicknames. To list a few Sir Lonzalot, Mr. <laughs> Mo Jangles, and the Turfinator. <laughs> How much money do they get if they win a race? Oh, I don't know, but I don't think they win money right. <laughs> from what I vaguely remember seeing. That's probably for the best, though, because uh, mo money, mo problems. Ah. Yes! <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and one winner that I want to highlight, or one Hall of Famer, is Racing Ray Rocks of Lake Zurich, Illinois. So uh, he was identified as the first member of the USL MRA and also recurrent champion of the races with his mower, Sodzilla. But in his profile in the Hall of Fame, he describes his passion for the league in a quote that I think perfectly sums up the spirit of the USL MRA. I like lawnmower racing because it's fun and affordable. Come to think of it, I like anything that's fun and affordable, which is why I gave up my marriage, but I'm still racing lawnmowers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so uh moving back to baseball unfortunately oh, can i can i before we do sure. that yeah. in 1997 kmart sponsored with uh a lawnmower racing uh to do kids race against drugs 
um, where it offered kids of a certain age the chance to race lawnmowers in a closed circuit course, all under the guise of somehow fighting drugs. <laughs> and so, you know who participated in this? Two thumbs at this podcast host. <laughs> And so I was like, I'm a Long Island, like 10 year old circuit level yeah. lawnmower racing obstacle course finalist. And I have somewhere at home the hat and t shirt from Kids Race Against Drugs. Um, and I completely forgotten about this, like until this moment. Um, but at the end of the, the year, there was a final in Orlando, Florida, where the winning child with the fastest time on the course received a $10,000 college scholarship that matured on their 18th birthday. Wow. Yeah. And it was like a in partnership with Dare, Campbell Soup, Frito Lay, and like a bunch of other sponsors. Um, but I remember just going to my Kmart, and there were just bales of hay in the entire parking lot, and you had to drive with like with like an adult on the back, <laughs> making sure you didn't somehow die. You had to drive this huge like John Deere lawnmower through this wow. obstacle course in the parking lot. How'd you do? <laughs> Uh, well enough. I did not advance. Did, <laughs> did, did you outrace the drugs is the important question. Yeah. <laughs> Probably would have done better if you weren't high. <laughs> yeah. Just say no, Rob. <laughs> so if I can, I would like to steer us back to baseball. Um, so you mentioned that the Federal League in 1914 you know, challenged the American and National League. Uh, but it wasn't that long before that that the American League uh, uh, was founded and challenged the National League. Um, so this this comes from the fact that in 1914, the legendary second baseman Napoleon Lajouet became the third player ever to reach 3,000 hits, which is pretty cool. And I find Lajouet really interesting because for 11 years, from 1902 to 1913, he played for the Cleveland Naps, a Major League Baseball team that was named after himself. Okay. <laughs> And the story about this is really, really interesting and touches on a lot of different things. So basically, in 1901, he was one of the very first superstar players to defect from the uh, National League to the then newly formed American League. Um, he was on the National League's Philadelphia Phillies. He felt underappreciated and underpaid. Um, so he was sort of like poached by the American League Philadelphia Athletics. So he moved across town. However, there was an acrimonious legal dispute between the National League and the American League over players leaving their contracts with NL teams and moving to AL teams. Um, and around that time, it ended up being ruled against the American League, and the Phillies obtained an injunction barring Lajouet from playing for any other team other than the Phillies. However, around that time also, a lawyer discovered that the injunction was only enforceable in the state of Pennsylvania. So Lajouet moved to the Cleveland Broncos, which, due to his stardom, was promptly renamed the Cleveland Napoleons by a poll of fans. Since Lajouet couldn't play in Pennsylvania without being subpoenaed, while the rest of the team named after him went there to play against the Philadelphia Athletics, he went to Atlantic City to pass the time and joined <laughs> up with them after the game. He's their star player, can't play anywhere in Pennsylvania, so he would just go to Atlantic City while they played in Philadelphia. And that's not even the craziest thing, actually. In 1904, he received a suspension for spitting tobacco juice in an umpire's eye. <laughs> Shortly after that, he was made the manager. So for four seasons, Napoleon Lajouet started for and coached a Major League Baseball team named after himself. Right? <laughs> Not even Michael Jordan in Space Jam was on that level. <laughs> all right, we're in the bottom of the ninth, and all we have left is our quiz. You guys ready? Let's do it. Okay, so I've assembled a quiz. It was hard to make one that was particularly baseball-y, so I'd say that this is a baseball quiz that is mostly about old-timey things. Okay. Oh, great. And so <laughs> it'll have that good old-timey feel. But let's see how it goes. So <clears throat> question number one. What product, named after a young girl and not a grown man, was airdropped in the thousands on the city of Pittsburgh in 1923, each with its own tiny parachute as a promotional stunt? Well, it's not Heinz that's associated with Pittsburgh? It's not Heinz. Pittsburgh is somewhat random in why they chose this okay. city first for the promotional mm -hmm. stunt. They later okay. did it on 40 subsequent cities as part of a 1920s Blitz campaign to increase the, the consumption of this product. I don't know. And yeah. I'll remind you that this is still a baseball-adjacent quiz. So if you're thinking about grown men... You might think about baseball players. Oh, they're Babe Ruths. Candy. Yeah. <laughs> so Baby Ruths. Oh, so Baby oh, Ruths. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, and so the makers of the Baby Ruth candy bar, um, even though it was produced in like the 19-teens and early 20s, right when Babe Ruth was kind of at his peak, 
they claimed that it was named after Grover Cleveland's daughter, Ruth. Wow. Who, so, <clears throat> Baby Ruth, yeah. America called her Baby Ruth. Even though she was an adult, or she, she was not really, like, a young girl in the 19-teens and 20s, and that was kind of a weird thing to call <laughs> your candy bar. Um, so many people think it was just a way around paying him any kind of royalties right. for using his name. So people would assume that... Okay. Yeah. That's right. But yeah, so Baby Ruth candy bars. Question number two. Which of these was a rule in early baseball that is no longer a rule today? Balls caught on one hop are still considered out. To tag someone out, you need to remove the ball from the glove first, or a pitcher could not leave the mound while the ball was in play. It's going to be the one where you take it out of your glove to tag someone. you have to touch them with the ball physically. Right. And if it's buried that's, in your glove, I feel like it's not physically. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what we're going with. B. Your answer B is incorrect. Oh, no. So interestingly, gloves didn't really exist oh, <laughs> in early wow. baseball. Okay. And then the first gloves were just kind of like leather-fingered gloves <laughs> that didn't have any like webbing at all. Okay. And so they're basically just like wearing a glove, and you didn't need to take it out. Um, so the rule was if it was caught on one bounce, it's oh. out. But yeah, so the one bounce rule. And it was also because the ball didn't go very far. So it was hard to hit it far. Uh, and so it, to give the defending team a chance, basically, like there's no way you're going to get pop flies with like, like a right. soft ball like that. Question number three. The Baseball Hall of Fame erected in Cooperstown, New York, uh, was made to commemorate what anniversary of baseball? So you have to know kind of two things. One is when it was there. And then how much earlier than that baseball had started. Oh, well. Is there any way to get it without knowing either of those things? <laughs> Potentially. Baseball started in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I don't know why, and I feel like this is just silly, is that Cooperstown, the Hall of Fame, was founded in 1925. Okay. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I'm going to say the 100th anniversary. What do you think? 1825? Well, I don't know that it was 1925. (laughs) (laughs) Right, we don't need to say the year, just the anniversary. Just the anniversary, yeah. Sure. Sounds good. It was the 100th anniversary. And you're not far off either. (laughs) Oh, wow. So so baseball... so weird. I don't know that. (laughs) (laughs) The creation of baseball was credited to Abner Doubleday, who somewhere between 1835 and 1838 seemed to establish the game. And so in 1935... Um, Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame Museum was opened, and it it commemorated the 100th anniversary of baseball. Wow. All right, question number four. Why are the Los Angeles Dodgers called Dodgers? Or what are they dodging? Baseballs. (laughs) If you can dodge a wrench. I was going to say traffic. (laughs) Because there's another part of the movie where it's like, if you can dodge traffic, then you can dodge a ball. (laughs) What's interesting is one of the things we just said is closer than the other. The traffic part. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, is it subway trains? No, but only oh only because of the time period. Oh, oh, I, I bet it's... Um, streetcars? I was going to say it's uh, it's horse-drawn carriages or something. It's actually streetcars. Oh, okay, great. Okay. Yeah. And so do- dodging the trolleys of Brooklyn was what oh, um, New Yorkers were called dodgers because they could cross the street and kind of dodge out of the way of all the oncoming trolley cars. Mm, cool. And so the Brooklyn Dodgers was their kind of eponym here. And when they moved to Los Angeles, they kept it, despite the lack of trolley cars, um, and uh, to this day. All right, question number five. Which of these is still a rule in baseball? Is it one, to remove the shine from new baseballs, umpires must rub them with mud from a particular creek in Burlington, New Jersey. Two, to clean home plate, umpires must use saltwater scrub, a potato sack for drying, and a cosmetic brush to remove dust. Or three, every game must be overseen by at least one left-handed umpire. So they definitely do dust off the plate with like a special little duster. I don't know if it's like that part's true, but the other parts aren't. Right, I don't know if it's that intensive a process. And I've heard a story, I feel like I've heard that they do like rub mud on baseballs. Um, But I feel like that is sort of a moral timey thing that wouldn't be true. Or definitely not required, you know, in these days. I, I and so I, I will say closets. to both of the things you just brought up that I asked what is a rule and I, I should say what is still on the books in Major League Baseball, okay. whether it's fully practiced or not. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, left-handed umpire seems unrealistic. Mm-hmm. What was the second one again? It was the ritual of dusting off the plate. The saltwater scrub, potato sack drying, and cosmetic brush dusting. 
That I think that one. I think number two. It was, in fact, number one. Oh. Uh. They recommend mud from Burlington County's Creek, uh, as it is enriched in all the things you would need. Which, like what? Name <laughs> ten. <laughs> I think you could name one. But yeah, it is It is still like in some obscure area of a rule book for like what they recommend for, for preparing balls for play. Question number six. William Howard Taft is famously the first U.S. president to throw out a first pitch in 1910. Who is the only president since to have not thrown out a pitch as president? Since Howard Taft, that was, oh, it was probably, what, between 10 and 14? 1910 and 1914, I think, was Howard uh, Taft? I think he ended in 12. Oh, okay, so 8 to 8. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, that makes FDR? sense. FDR? Um, I, well, who's no, FDR threw out from the stands, actually. I don't not, think he not did. Teddy. So is it FDR? Well, yeah. Oh no, sorry, FDR. FDR, not Teddy. Teddy no, yeah, sorry, no. Yes. FDR, FDR did. They would FDR have had thrown to... from the stands to a catcher. Yes, yes. Ah, yeah, that's true. Okay. Could it have been someone who wasn't in office long enough? I mean, I'm that's trying to I'm think. Trying to think, but who would it have been? Kennedy wasn't in office very long, right? Yeah, he wasn't. Am I wrong about that? George W. Bush owned the Texas Rangers, so I'm guessing not him. <laughs> I'm guessing he managed to make his way down there. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Donald Trump hasn't done it. Does that count? So I was going to accept that as well. So Donald Trump, the sitting president, yeah. has not thrown out a pitch as president. Yeah, yeah. He has in his life thus far. I see. Um, mm-hmm. But he has turned down several offers to do so. So that right. that is, I would say, like the secondary answer. Okay. But he still has a chance. Can't picture Nixon picture <laughs> baseball. I totally can. You can? So I'll also say this, that until Reagan was the first president to throw it out from the mound, he Uh just kind of stood on the field and threw it to a pitcher. Uh Um, And actually, H.W. was the first pitcher to actually, the first president to actually pitch a baseball. Oh, like like zip it in there. Wound up and went for it. (laughs) Um, and he had this famous quote after that, like, um, it was like like six inches wide of the plate. Um, and they're like, that was a pretty good pitch. It was a little wide. And he was like, the pitcher, the catcher was standing in front of the plate. And he said, well, he caught it before it broke. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, let's, what do you think we should go with? Just kind of randomly. Um, let's go Kennedy. Sure. JFK. He so. did, I'm afraid. Oh. Okay. Yeah. And so the only person I could find who had not done it in office was Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, okay. Yeah, he did it um, in a 2004 San Diego Padres game for, for no particularly good reason. Um, <laughs> San Diego just cause, just cause Yeah, can. I don't know. <laughs> but, like, uh, there was one, like, reading many, many sources, they all said, like, he never did it until later in life. He was the only sitting president to not do it. Right. And then somewhere on Wikipedia, it said that he threw out an opening pitch in the 1979 World Series. Mm. And I was doing the math in my head, and like, that's right during his presidency. And so I tried to verify that. And Wikipedia didn't have it sourced, and I couldn't find any list of, like, the 79 World Series opening pitches. Mm. And so someone else may know better that, that he actually did throw one out in 1979, but several different sports sites claim right. that he's the only sitting president um, to have not done it. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Also, that's the second time Jimmy Carter's come up in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unexpectedly. <but> yeah. <laughs> okay. Two more questions to go. Question number seven. Because traveling teams in the 1800s rarely had time to do laundry between games, what tradition arose that is still in place today? Uh, uh, different jerseys for home and away games? Yes. That's it? Wow. Okay, mm-hmm. good. And so I was just like wearing the same clothes every game, <laughs> turning and your underwear care. inside out. <laughs> so it's a tradition, actually, in many sports that the home team wears a light color and the visiting team wears a dark color. Um, and this rose from in 1800s baseball teams would play four, five, six road games in a row and not have a chance to wash them. So the darker colors hid the dirt much better. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. I was wondering because, like, you know, you just wear the dark, you just wear the away jersey. That doesn't mean that it's clean. No, like it's not like you go on the road alternate between home and away. Um, so that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, it just it, they felt it looked better. I see. They were usually grays, actually. So like okay. dark, dark jerseys hadn't really arisen yet. But like musty, like dirty grays were the, the preferred away color. Well, they didn't start dirty gray. Right. Well, <laughs> actually, some of them. Well, they started gray. I see. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And question number eight. Uh, and this one surprised me. In what decade did every major league baseball stadium install lights, enabling night games to occur? The 1990s. Is that right? It is very close. What? Yeah. That's 
That's crazy. And so it, it is the 1980s. Oh, I thought, were, yeah. I thought you were going to say, it is the 1990s. It was very close <laughs> yeah. to being exactly close. right. Yeah. No, the 1980s, right. okay. Yeah, and so wow. it was 1988 when Wrigley Field, our Federal League field, uh, it finally installed lights for night games. Uh, and so up until 1988, all games played at Wrigley Field were day games. Wow. Okay, well, you guys really hit it out of the park. Uh, nicely done. Uh, I think we struck out. Can't, but... can't believe we made it this far. <laughs> All right, thanks everyone at home for listening. We hope you had a great time learning about some of the oddities of old baseball. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. And we'll see you guys next time. As outrageous as that initial fact is, it's actually only a scraping of the tip of the iceberg that was the persona of Ray Caldwell. Don't say scraping of the tip. (laughs) (laughs) I really don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) Someone's still still, still stuck on Merkel's boner. (laughs) Damn it.